This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Melissa Gowder to tell us all about her book titled Time and Power in the Azraq Refugee Camp, a 9 to 5 Emergency, published in 2023 by the American University of Cairo Press. This is a really interesting book, um, looking at an incredibly important issue of, in many ways, what's the experience like in refugee camps today, focusing on a particular one in Jordan, and especially the idea of power, of time, of how these things interplay, to think about something that maybe we don't, um, the politics of time and how that creates, how that creates barriers um, for the people who live in the camps, for the people who work in the camp. Um, So Melissa, I'm so pleased that you're here to give us a much better understanding of this topic than I ever could. So thank you for being here and sharing your time with us. No, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. Before we dive into your book, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Sure, yeah. So I'm um, currently a lecturer in anthropology and um, international development at Sussex. Uh, so I work, I get to work, I'm very um, excited that I get to work kind of between both the ethnography world, um, but also stay quite close to the development world, um, which obviously kind of encapsulates the the larger themes of the book, um, looking at refugee camps, for example, um, through ethnography. Um, so this book, I should say, is based on um, PhD fieldwork and my PhD dissertation. Um, but for the book itself, I wanted to really go beyond the dissertation to push past, um, you know, push past some of the the um, explorations that I did in the dissertation and really explore quite deeply time in the refugee camp. Um, I found that, you know, a lot is said about space in, in displacement studies and camp studies, and it's very, very interesting. And I do look at space. Um, but I found that time is often kind of kept to the background um, when we talk about people on the move. Um, and so um, this book was an attempt to kind of try to prioritize the foreground looking at time um, in camp settings. Um, And I also felt that there was 
a need to say more also about Azraq in particular, which is the camp um, that is the subject of the book. Um, so when I was starting my um, fieldwork uh, in Azraq in about 2017, 2018, uh, there wasn't much written about Azraq. Uh, and that deeply contrasted kind of the very concerning things I was hearing from both aid workers, but also um, just people in Jordan, whether they were displaced people or um, just people who had heard about Azraq, um, who were saying, you know, quite uh, concerning things about um, you know, Azraq being a, almost a miserable place or people being quite um, scared to live in Azraq. Um, but nothing was, was being written about it. Um, it wasn't really explored because it was a very hard to access camp. Um, so for me, that kind of gave me the, the, this very urgent sense of importance to um, get what I found uh, out there written um, in book form. I, I think I, I went into my PhD knowing that I wanted this to be a book so that I could really you know, produce a full, complete story. Um, and I was very lucky that um, American University and Cairo Press um, uh, published this book, um, and uh, they have a great reach in the Middle East as well. And that was very important for me as someone who really wants to engage as well in the actual region um, in which Azraq is situated. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, that raises quite a few issues that I think we're probably going to get into. And the first mm -hmm. one you've mentioned a little bit already, right? The focus of time and why that was important mm -hmm. um, to make central to the book. Would you? Is there more you'd like to tell us about kind of why you decided on this focus on time? Yeah, sure. Um, my Actually, my interest um, in refugee camps, I should say, started with an interest in space. Um, I already mentioned, you know, how a lot of the scholarship looks at space, and I was part of that as well. Um, I was doing my, um, even as far back as my, my bachelor's research um, at the University of Chicago, I, I was looking at um, spaces of displacement in, in Jordan for Palestinian and Iraqi refugees. Um, and then I continued looking at space uh, during my master's at Cambridge um, in Zatri refugee camp, which I'm sure we'll talk about. It's the other kind of main camp for, for Syrians in, in Jordan, for Syrian refugees. Um, but when I was in Zatri, kind of very much wanting to look at this idea of humanitarian space and how people navigate this space, what kept coming up was actually people talking to me about time um, unprompted. Um, and, you know, I would, um, I was, I was there doing aid work um, and uh, I would leave at the end of the day and I would say goodbye to some residents of the camp. And I remember they would always say, you know, inshallah, the next time we see you, it will be in Syria, even though they knew that, you know, I would be back the next day doing the same kind of work that we had just done today. Um, and I remember that that very much stuck with me. It was almost this routine or this pattern of not wanting to acknowledge that tomorrow they might still be in the camp, um, not wanting to come to terms with that type of future. Uh, so I felt that, you know, what 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 people often talk about in camps is this idea of this temporal paradox that people are there for um you know, they're in a temporary space for an indefinite amount of time. It's this permanent temporariness. Um, but that's kind of where those discussions on time end. You know, usually it's this, you know, it's a temporal paradox and it's kind of 
again, set to the background. Um, and so I thought, you know, but there's something more here. I feel like it's more complex. Uh, so when I went to Azraq for um, my fieldwork in 2017, um, I went there with, you know, these similar expectations about, um, well, people are probably going to be talking about wanting to return to Syria and the future being in Syria. And um, I, I expected similar conversations to be happening, but actually no one... Um, I found was was talking about these things because they were so busy kind of trying to get through their day-to-day lives um, in the camp, trying to, um, you know, navigate the camp system and um, just, um, yeah, get through to the next day. Uh, And I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting this very much kind of enforced um, presentism. Um, It was a very bureaucratic feel. I'm sure we'll talk about that. but it was, it was, I guess, a different way that people were engaging it with time than I was expecting. Um, and so that's when I really started to um, delve a lot deeper. And I started to talk to people about their daily lives, about what different futures might look like um, and, uh, you know, how they've spent their years in the camp. Um, and then I also just observed how they were um, interacting with the aid system, um, however they were doing that, whether it's in NGO programs or they, they needed, um, you know, basic needs through the camp system, the aid system. Um, and what I kind of found was that time was this very hidden avenue um, through which power was working um, alongside kind of spatial power. So it wasn't just that the camp space and the way that it's um, kind of organized and its material infrastructure was shaping people's lives, but um, that the their everyday interactions, the way that they were um, kind of encouraged to think about their futures, uh, to narrate their presence, all of that were also kind of shaping how people experienced um, and still experience their displacement in Azraq. So for me, you know, bringing time into this book quite centrally was to, um, you know, identify like, hey, there's there's another way that people are experiencing displacement. There's another way that they're being um, disempowered and also maybe empowered. Um, it's just another way that power is working and we're not talking about this. Um, so I wanted to um, reveal that, kind of highlight that um, through, um, you know, ethnography that I spent about um, but more than a year also um, conducting, which allowed me to also kind of see how things changed over that um, period of time as well. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, as as you mentioned earlier, I think we do think a lot about space when it comes to refugee camps. So mm-hmm. the focus on time is really important and really interesting. So thank you for taking us through that. Um, I do have a few sort of further questions on the topic, given it is obviously quite central to your work. You talk about in the book using, quote, an existential approach to time. Mm. Um, can you tell us kind of what you mean by that and maybe how it showed up in your work? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this was a way of kind of um, bringing time in as something that's more than just context, right? So um, I was trying to paint the picture of time as something that is very much experienced by people um, in an almost tangible way. You know, when we when we're forced to wait somewhere, um, 
we can really tangibly feel the passing of time. Um, it becomes something that we notice, right? We don't take it for granted anymore. It's just passing. We're like, oh, you know, we're here, we're waiting. It's been 15 minutes, it's been 30 minutes, an hour. Um, and it's that kind of dynamic that we're seeing in the camp, but at very different levels, um, where it's something that people are noticing. People are keeping track of how much time they've spent in the camp. Um, but it's also something that's been kind of a blurred experience for them where, um, you know, everything is, their kind of tempos and their paces have been kind of um, interrupted in a way, uh, or there's new tempos and paces that um, are presenting themselves. So um, looking at time as this kind of existential experience um, allows us to kind of go beyond this idea that time is some kind of universal objective fact or context or something that's, you know, quite flat um, that everyone experiences in the same way. Um, and um, I think this also allowed me to bring in the kind of biographical aspect of time where it's about people, you know, thinking um, about their legacies, you know, thinking about their legacies beyond their, you know, biological lives, you know, how their careers are going to um, kind of um, uh, allow them to um, outlive their biological lives, right? Or we can also consider family building in that same way. So looking at time existentially allowed me to bring in um, the very different aspects of how people think about time and also the where their lives are going and, and what they're leaving behind. Um, and it also allowed me to kind of make one of the most important points, which is that, you know, the refugee camp itself is not just one long present, right? So um, that's another thing that tends to happen when we look at time as a context in a camp, as some paradox, as I mentioned before, is that we tend to kind of talk about the camp as, as the present. Um, anything that happened in the camp is the present. Anything that happened before people were in the camp is the past. Um, and then whatever happens when they go back, when they leave the camp, um, would be the future. Um, and that's actually, you know, quite a you know, flat, um, linear uh, and um, simplified way of understanding time in the camp. Um, so here, by, by looking at the existential experience, I'm also saying that people are in the camp and they have pasts in the camp as well as their you know, current present moment. You know, if they've spent three, four years in the camp, those years are also part of their past. Um, they also have different types of futures. They have a near future, which maybe, you know, is... A couple weeks from now, they're still in the camp, and that is the near future to today. Um, they have a far future that might be outside of the camp. Um, but, you know, when you've spent years in the camp, you start to wonder when, where's that boundary kind of between near future and, and far future. Um, so I think just to kind of summarize that, it's it's the existential approach is, is a way of kind of complicating how we look at time um, of allowing for contradictory timelines and um, kind of um, opposing um, paces, you know, the different ways that people experience the rhythms of, of their everyday life. Speaking of different ways of viewing time and somewhat contradictory ways of viewing time, um, the subtitle of your book has the phrase nine to five emergency. And nine to five, we generally think is pretty mundane, right? <laughs> emergency, on the other hand, is very much the opposite. So what is the nine to five emergency in this context? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, 
Thanks for bringing it in. Um, yeah. So the the nine to five emergency is a concept that I'm using to, as as you very eloquently mentioned, to kind of refer to complicated, contradictory temporalities in Azraq. Um, and it's really stemming from the bureaucratic pace of the camp. So as I mentioned um, earlier, you know, people are um, having to kind of run around every day trying to get their everyday issues um, somehow um, resolved or at least addressed. Um, and um, this is done through something that's called the referral system, um, which is very much at the heart of how Azraq is um, organized. Um, so this referral system is basically, uh, it consists of one community center in each of the four villages in Azraq. Um, and so if, you know, someone's living in the, in the camp, for example, and, and their window has broken in their caravan, or um, they're looking for new kind of income generating opportunities, uh, or they just need help with some aspect of, of their family, um, you know, very kind of mundane, but basic needs that people have um, from living in the camp, not because they are displaced, but because they are living in Azraq. Um, they have to approach the community center um, and a lot of people end up waiting for hours to be seen by an aid worker or a case manager as they're referred to. Um, and then that case manager needs to refer um, that resident to the relevant NGO in the camp that that deals with whatever issue that is, whether it's kind of caravan repair or um, cash for work programs called incentive-based volunteering um, or, you know, something health related. Um, but this system, uh, you know, it's, it's very much narrated as quite efficient and orderly, but actually it's very bureaucratic and it's very proceduralist. And so it's very much weighed down by its own, um, the, the, you know, its own operation. So people end up waiting for weeks just to um, hear about the next step in their referral or they're deferred by the aid worker. The aid worker says, well, you have to come back tomorrow. You don't have the right paperwork for this, or, you know, you're not eligible for this cash for work position right now. Um, or uh, what I saw a lot of as well was aid workers sending emails to the NGO they're doing the referral to and the NGO sending an email back, um, basically deferring that responsibility back onto the community center NGO. Um, and there would be a lot of kind of back and forth, whose responsibility is this? Um, so, you know, all of that is to kind of describe um, this very bureaucratic system that I was actually not, you know, expecting to see in a camp. I was not expecting to see some sort of camp bureaucracy. Um, and what happened is that the pace at which the aid workers were operating themselves was not matching the pace with which residents needed support. Um, it was very much undermined by this kind of, oh, we always have tomorrow um, when we open up at 8.30 a.m. tomorrow um, and they can just come by then or they can come by after the weekend and we'll deal with this issue. Um, and so nine to five emergencies is you know, trying to get at this very um, mundane response to some very real um, daily emergencies or um, urgencies that people have um, as residents uh, in Azraq. Hmm. Very much a phrase that encapsulates such a contradiction. So thank you for hmm. taking us through that. Um, to understand kind of what the reality 
is of these experiences. Uh, I'd love to ask you to tell us a little bit more about something you mentioned earlier uh, about comparing this camp, the Azraq camp, with the Zatari camp, um, which has received rather a lot of headlines um, Mm -hmm. and was established just before this one. Um, And so it made a lot of sense to me reading your book to hear that residents in the camp would in fact kind of compare their camp Mm -hmm. with that one. Um, Mm -hmm. That seems pretty logical. How does examining Zatari camp help us understand Azraq camp, um, especially if we are thinking about it through these lenses of nine to five emergency and existential sense of time and this particular lens? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, as you mentioned, we, we have to look at the two together. I think it's impossible to look at Azraq without understanding um, Zatri. Um, so as you mentioned, Zatri was was opened about two years before Azraq. So, you know, they're, they're not that far apart in age, but they're treated very differently. Um, and each camp kind of plays its own um, significant role in Jordan's kind of ability or um, the narrative, I should say, of how they host um, refugees. Uh, so Zatri is, is many ways people kind of consider it to be the opposite of Azraq. You know, it's uh, about five square kilometers um, with 80,000 residents um, across kind of 12 districts. And it's just next to Mufraq City um, to the north of Amman. Um, so there's a lot of trading actually that happens between people who live in Zatri and um, the emergence in, in uh, Mufraq. Um, to stock actually what is the um, quite large uh, marketplace that residents themselves uh, started in Zatri in order to kind of um, earn income. Um, And this marketplace earns, I want to say, I don't know the exact number, but I know it earns like millions um, of dinar, which is similar to the British pound um, every year in revenue. Um, And so you know, it's it's kind of gotten this earned this reputation of um, a, a city of a of a. I think at, at at times it was considered the fourth largest city in quotes um, in Jordan, um, and alongside that, people were um, in the first couple of years that Zatri had had been in operation. Um, people were engaging in a lot of demonstrations against. Um, the camp management, um, but also just demonstrating um, in support of uh, families and and, and um, friends who were still in in southern Syria and Dara, where a lot of kind of the the most violent conflict was occurring. Um, but I want to focus on on those demonstrations that were against the camp management. Um, and what had happened is, you know, the first couple of years of Zatri, it wasn't it wasn't very well managed, um, and it wasn't very uh, you know, security wasn't really being um, supported um, by, I think, anything other than maybe the, the, the Jordanian army itself. Um, and so, uh, and they were kind of just operating outside the camp, not inside the camp. Um, so people had a lot of frustrations. There were very dangerous fires that were um, uh, kind of moving throughout the camp and and um, some people lost their lives due to kind of this the negligence of camp management um, and uh, then later the UNHCR would kind of take over um, and they started to put in these systems and to um, negotiate with the residents about how things would be organized um, but because those two years had been quite um, uh, 
uh, eventful um, and sometimes violent. Sometimes people lost their lives in those demonstrations. Uh, Zatri also earned this this uh, reputation um, as this unruly camp. So not only was it this city with its own <laughs> microeconomy, it was also this uh, unruly city. It was urban. It was that kind of um, we hear a lot in in um, kind of uh, urban studies and architecture about the, the city as dangerous because it's crowded, it's dense, um, and it's not organized. Um, so all of this is to say that then when Uzrek would be built about two years later, um, I do believe that it was kind of built in a way to respond to um, the issues that had uh, that had arose in um, had arisen in Zatri. Um, and so, you know, it was... It was put smack dab in the middle of the desert to the east of Amman, about an hour away, or an hour and a half away from Amman, um, in between kind of uh, an, an area where there's a lot of military bases, but not much else, maybe some factories. Um, <clears throat> it was built kind of in 15 square kilometers of space. It was three times the size of Zatri. And um, the the villages for residents were very much um, <clears throat> separated um, by a lot of space. So the idea is that people couldn't really get to know others from other villages. Um, and the base camp, which is where the NGOs kind of have their headquarter caravans, administrative stuff, that was placed about, you know, maybe an hour's walking distance from the villages. So it was very different from Zatri, where the demonstrations were happening at the base camp right next to their districts. Um, <clears throat> so all of this, I think, were, were very clearly responses to what had happened in Zatri. Um, the caravans in Azraq were cemented into the desert in straight rows, so you have the, the legibility of being able to see from one end of the camp to the other, you can see what stands out. Um, and it was very much built around this logic of keeping things in order of security. Um, and so, you know, even though Azraq is only two years younger than Zatri, it's very much um, narrated as this kind of the future of camps or as, um, you know, something that's become uh, it's always kind of forever new because it's unchanged because people can't adapt their caravans, for example. So maybe it looks, you know, some of the caravans look a little weathered, um, but it doesn't have the lived in feel that we have, that we see and, and we see quite tangibly um, in Zatri. And so Zatri then kind of takes on the narrative of the the old, um, you know, disorderly camp Um and um, I think another kind of main con contrast that's really important is that Zatri, when it's narrated to the outside, when Jordan wants to, to talk about how, uh, how much work they're doing to host refugees, they'll, they'll often point to Zatri for um, its people, for the spirits of the people in Zatri. They're very creative, they're innovative, they're always, um, you know, they're, they're initiating um, businesses and um, they're entrepreneurs. Um, and then in Uzruk, they never talk about kind of the people and the spirit of people in Uzruk or its livability, but rather the technology of Uzruk, which is um, uh, at, finally at this moment, I think it's completely um, uh, powered by um, solar energy, um, but it also kind of introduced biometric scanning and a lot of kind of these new um, technological methods or approaches to to um, 
you know, organizing uh, large amounts of people um, in one place. Um, so again, because of that technological component, Azra continues to be this kind of future of camps. Um, and look, Jordan is being super innovative in Azraq because of that, but they're also like caring for people and humans. And we see that um, by looking at Daughtry's residence. Um, so I would say that's kind of the key, uh, the key lens to look uh, to look at them is kind of not just to say, well, you know, Azraq is is considered to be the future of camps, but um, what is the actual role that each of them are playing in those narratives? Um, and um, I think it's quite clear once you set them, you know, side by side, and you see the different narratives that are that are coming out of each one. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. So given these different narratives, and as you said, considered to be the future of refugee camps, to what extent do you think Azraq lives up to its billing as, you know, one article called it, quote, the best planned refugee camp in the world? Yeah, I mean, that's quite an interesting phrase. I always think about this idea of, of, of a planned refugee camp because camps are so often not planned. I mean, the, these are often, you know, responding to um, a lot of people who are fleeing from somewhere um, in a short amount of time, and, and and suddenly you have to to address people's basic needs in this new space. Um, so often camps are not not planned, um, and so what what's kind of um, maybe makes Azraq stand apart, at least at the time that it was built, is that it was you know they had a year to plan it, and they had money. Um, and it was actually a camp that was created um, for uh, an anticipated amount of people. I think Jordan was anticipating um, several, um, maybe almost 100,000 residents. And in the end, only about 40,000 people um, ended up kind of being housed in Azraq. But it was, it was built out of anticipation, which is very much something that often refugee camps aren't. I mean, Zatri was built to respond to um, people who had already left southern uh, Syria, the, 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 at that time, very kind of egregious violence that was happening in southern Syria. Um, so it's, it's an interesting phrase just to think about this idea of what what a, the best planned refugee camp, what does that even mean? Um, and I mean, one of my central arguments uh, is, is challenging this, this idea that um, Azraq should not be considered the future of camps. I don't think it should be repeated in, in any way. It shouldn't be used as a prototype, except maybe to kind of learn lessons from. Um, you know, I would assume that the best planned refugee camp in the world would 
um, have people's basic needs met. Um, and we don't have that in Azraq when I was there in, in 2017, 2018. Um, there still wasn't uh, electricity available to about half of the residents um, in two of the villages. Um, and, you know, I was there, that was what, three years, Azraq opened in 2014. So that was about three, four years after it opened. Um, and people, you know, the whole camp did not have electricity um, until 2019. Um, and, you know, when I looked into that, I realized that that was, that was the, the process. That was how it was supposed to be. It wasn't that there were delays, um, that it took, you know, five years for electricity to be, to finally reach every corner of the camp, but that was actually how it was supposed to be phased out, um, because they were kind of connecting each village to the solar panel farm, um, just on the outskirts of the camp. Um, and in the meantime, there were no other means of electricity that were provided. I mean, you would have generators that were running the NGO centers, but for people living in their caravans, um, they had to live off of kind of small solar panels that they bought um, from the marketplace, for example. Um, and so to me, you know, the best plan refugee camp uh, in the world would have probably had some sort of electricity for everyone, um, you know, from from day one. Um, you know, you'd also assume that um, a, a well-planned camp wouldn't create new problems for people living there um, like child labor, for example. Uh, why does child labor exist um, in a camp uh, where, you know, people weren't living there before. So clearly that's that's not a, a, an issue that's coming from uh, people already having lived in that area. That's coming from the fact that people are not receiving enough financial support um, to support themselves. Um, and so they're turning to, you know, their, their children have to work. Um, and, you know, that's a new problem that's been created out of Azraq's kind of, um, you know, uh, to me, kind of failed or flawed infrastructure, um, you know, and you would also think that maybe a, a, the best planned refugee camp would not have, uh, it would feel safe for people and people do not feel safe in, in Azraq. Um, you know, a lot of times they would tell me how, how scared they were of being deported if they got in trouble. Um, you know, there's a, a village called Village 5, which houses... Um, at the time, it was housing 10,000 people who had been taken in from the border area between Jordan and Syria, um, uh, you know, until they could receive high security clearance um, from the Jordanian government, and then they could be moved out into the rest of the, the camp. Um, but what happened is that that process ended up taking years and years. And so people were stuck in this high security village, not being able to leave. Um, and a lot of them considered it to be kind of an open air prison. Um, and to me, that village, village five is very much what defines um, the camp's kind of environment or culture of fear, which is not something I would again, um, consider to be kind of something that's well planned. So I think, you know, if we go back to looking at Zatri, um, what made and what makes Satri livable, you know, people able to kind of adapt to their caravans, they're able to find income generating opportunities, um, they're able to do kind of a, a vast um, array of um, activities in their day to day life. You know, what makes that space livable was actively excluded from Azraq from the very beginning. Um, and to me, I think when we're talking about what makes a well-planned refugee camp um, is, is, you know, 
where's the livability? Where, where is that built into the design? Um, and of course, you know, the problem with camps in general um, is that, you know, that, that, that livability is the very thing that's discouraged. Jordan doesn't want people to feel welcome to stay in Jordan. They don't want people to feel like they could settle there, that, that they could, you know, have uh, some semblance of a life there. Um, they're supposed to kind of remain unsettled in a way. So, um, you know, I think Azrak, you know, to answer your question, Azrak does not uh, live up to this idea that it's um, the best planned refugee camp in the world. And I think it actually also calls, you know, for us to question um, whether there can be um, a good, you know, an ideal refugee camp. What does that even look like? Um, or are there other kind of solutions, other approaches that we need to be looking at um, when it comes to kind of mass displacement? Hmm. Really, really interesting. And as you said, incredibly important, right? Because these sorts of claims kind of have to be followed up, um, especially given that the camp was created in sort of unusual conditions and mm -hmm. what people are actually experiencing there, um, which is not sort of what was stated. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd like to, if you don't mind, go into a bit more of the actual experiences. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about some of the fears that people had um, and you argue in the book that time and that particular lens really highlights some what you call hierarchies of vulnerability in the camp. And I think we've you've kind of mentioned some of them already implicitly. I'm wondering if we can surface that in the conversation. Would you mind telling us about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, vulnerability is, um, it's related to time in a way that I, I wasn't expecting. And so, um, you know, to, to, to kind of start off with some background on vulnerability, when we look at vulnerability in humanitarianism, um, or even development programs, um, it's usually this kind of buzzword that's used to categorize people's needs. So you have 40,000 people in a camp, you obviously can't help all of them um, at once. Um, so you have to find uh, some sort of categorization to um, start helping people in an organized way. Um, and usually vulnerability um, is uh, based in assumptions of physical ability, of age and gender. So, um, you know, where, where people with physical abilities or disabilities are, um, are prioritized by aid workers um, or the elderly are prioritized because they can't get around the camp. Um, and by gender, I mean, um, mainly it's kind of this category of women or women and children as kind of one category looking at um, either unmarried women who are young and therefore, you know, vulnerable um, to violence um, or uh, widowed women or single mothers. Um, and so usually we see these categories kind of very uh, much broken down in NGO programming and they, you know, they have the numbers and that's how they decide what they're going to do where, for who and, and, and when. Um, and in Azraq, this is this is very much true. I mean, and you haven't in um, Village Two, uh, that one is prioritized for people who have physical disabilities and, and people who are um, have physical disabilities due to age. Um, and you have some sections of the camp that are for uh, prioritized for um, young single men, which keeps them away from. Um, 
you know, people who are considered to be vulnerable, like young single women or um, single mothers. And so it very much falls into these stereotypes of the threatening young single man um, and the the weak kind of um, or vulnerable women. Um, so that already exists in the camp as it does in many camps. And then in Uzrek, there's another layer to this, as you mentioned, which is time, um, uh, or as I call it sometimes newness. So really it's about um, who is newer to the camp um, and the people who are newer to the camp are considered to be more vulnerable. Um, and so this tends to kind of divide the camp in two between villages three and six, which are the ones that were built um, uh, right at the beginning. And so the people who live there um, have lived in the camp for the longest amount of time. And then you have villages two and five, um, which were built uh, a year or two after village three and six. And so people there are newer to the camp um, on top of often having those other vulnerabilities, as I mentioned, uh, like physical disabilities. Um, and uh, what I would notice is that the aid worker is preferred to actually work in those newer villages two and five because they felt that that's where people needed them the most. Um, I talk about this neat kind of their need to be needed. They wanted to feel helpful. They wanted to feel like they were doing something, especially in a, in a situation where people have been there for years and years. Um, and it becomes less clear kind of what the aid workers difference is what difference they're making what's their impact um, in people's lives um, and so they tended to kind of be drawn to the people who were newer to the camp um, and you know key to this newness is, is actually knowledge so it's the idea that those who are new to the camp don't really know how to navigate it um, to the same way that people in the other villages do so um, you know people who have been there longer were narrated as kind of, oh, they already know how to navigate the camp um, and they can be sneaky about figuring out, um, you know, how to take advantage of the system. There's a lot of those types of narr narratives around um, how much knowledge people had about the camp, whereas people who are new to the camp, oh, we need to help them, you know, we need to, to help them figure out how to navigate the camp. You know, they're easier, they're, their minds are more kind of shapeable at that moment. And, and there would be this type of vocabulary that I would hear a lot. Oh, they're nicer as well because they need you more, so they're more polite. Um, and so, I mean, this was just something that, that I thought was was really important in Uzrek to see was this idea that, again, it was another way that the power was working through time about who was being um, kind of treated in which ways because of the amount of time they had spent um, in the camp. And, and at what point were people seen as not needing help anymore just because they've been in a camp for four or five years, even if they still continue to have um, basic needs that remain unmet? This, I think that answer helps us really understand um, something you were talking about earlier with the nine to five emergency, right? This clash mm -hmm. between what the residents need and kind of what the aid workers are sort of prepared to provide um, and the different expectations around that. And as you talk about in the book, it's bigger than just kind of, oh, well, you can just come back tomorrow. It's bigger than sort of who goes in which camps. You, you talk about in the camp that there's this wider issue of, quote, the timelines of humanitarianism and development are confused and intertwined, right? That these two concepts, really, of humanitarianism and development are present, but very complicated and in a lot of ways quite contradictory. Um, can you tell us a bit about how we can see that in this camp and some of its consequences? 
Hmm. Yeah, I mean, what, what what we started seeing when I was there um, was it was this also shift that was happening in humanitarianism and development work um, kind of more generally around the world, um, where we started to see this push um, coming from donors um, for programming, um, NGO programming, that was somewhere along this, what they call the humanitarian development nexus. Um, so the humanitarian timeline, which is usually uh, more immediate, right? People's basic needs, it's what we consider to be aid and aid work. Um, and then the development timeline, which is longer term, at least, you know, a year to three years to five years, whatever, um, that, you know, the question of what is development is, is something that is, is very hard to answer. And I, I, you know, teach entire courses on that, but um, you know, in, in this world of, of Jordanian kind of the Jordanian NGO world, development is seen as kind of anything that has to do with people's midterm to long-term needs. Um, and those needs tend to be uh, often kind of imposed understandings of, of, what people's values are and what they should be. Um, and that's where you have a lot of conversations around kind of women's empowerment um, and, um, you know, early marriage and education. Um, and you start to see a lot of kind of Western ideas of, of what those things should be. Um, and so, you know, putting those timelines together of, of the humanitarian timeline and the development timeline together in a program sounds like, okay, you know, maybe it's a good idea. It's this idea of, of you know, teach, giving people fish, but also teaching them how to fish. Um, but what happens in, in Uzruk is that it becomes so confused and so um, they tend to undermine each other, these two timelines, um, where kind of there, there becomes this gaping hole in the middle where people's basic needs remain unmet. Um, so in Uzruk, what was happening is that um, you know, people still didn't have electricity. They still didn't have, um, you know, many opportunities for income generating opportunities um, or activities. Um, and yet you were starting to see this influx of development programming that was coming in that was saying, oh, we need to talk about education, especially for women and girls. And we need to talk about um you know, early marriage, and um, we need to talk about women's empowerment, you know, things that were uh, not really um, ever asked for by anyone. Um, and it was unclear, you know, what um, issues they were uh, addressing. Um, you know, early marriage, as an example, um, is, I mean, this, and this is where we also get those conversations about development, uh, critiquing culture, right? Um, but to give a little bit of a context, early marriage is, is um, quite a traditional practice in, in some areas of Syria and many of the areas that people are coming from um, who, who live in Azraq. Um, and this practice would usually involve, you know, both um, people in that couple, both individuals, the, the woman and the man, being underage, um, marrying before they were 18. Um, uh, and what happened in the camp is because of the financial issues that people experience in that camp setting, um, a lot of parents were sending their, their daughters away to be married to kind of much older Jordanian men who were living outside of the camp. Um, and this would become kind of a, a, a dangerous practice for a lot of girls who didn't consent to this. Um, you know, a lot of girls ended up in, in kind of violent, abusive uh, marriages. 
um, and and parents were 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 engaged in this practice um, because they wanted to protect their daughters from living in a camp, from camp life, and from their kind of lives being tainted by that, um, which would affect their future marriage prospects. And it was also a way of easing their own financial burdens to take care of their um, children. Um, and so, you know, the practice itself is is completely. Uh, you know, in this case, it is putting a lot of girls in danger and absolutely should be um, condemned. But the way it was being addressed was very much through a kind of cultural critique. You have these kind of development programs coming in and telling girls, um, you know, you, you should live your life as you want. You should have dreams for your future. You should dress the way that you want, not the way that your father tells you to dress. Um, but they were not actually uh, addressing the underlying financial cause of the reason, you know, why why girls are being married off, um, many against their will, um, and um, so it was kind of frustrating to see that because uh, these programs did very little. Often they would kind of come in between girls and their parents, um, and they would kind of threaten. Uh, parents would end up sometimes threatening to to keep their daughters away from the NGO centers where these daughters were you know, making really strong friendships. Um, and these programs did nothing about, oh, let's, you know, maybe increase the employability of your daughter so that when she's, you know, old enough to work, um, she has some opportunities to to actually make some money and, and um, uh, you know, um, kind of contribute to the family's finances in that way. Or let's help the parents um, find some work so that they don't have to send their daughters away. Um, and so, I mean, that, that's just kind of one example of this idea where the development programs kind of came in and they very much bulldozed over the fact that people still didn't have their basic needs unmet and they're trying to. Um, and then they're being kind of bombarded with these programs that have nothing to do with very much uh, of anything. Um, and to me, that that adds to that confusion of nine to five emergency. It adds to the confusion of how people experience the, the tempos of, and the rhythms of, of life in the camp. So then the obvious or one of the questions kind of based off of that is if the assumptions being made by the aid workers um, are not really tracking with what the residents need, don't really seem to be um, kind of seeing the full scope, I suppose, in a lot of ways. What can we, because you, as you said, spent quite a lot of time there and did talk to rather a lot of the camp residents. What did you find when you asked the residents about their dreams, about their imaginings of the future? What did they say about that? Um, and kind of, I guess, aside from just the issue of marriage and age for that, how did these dreams and imaginings compare with perhaps the assumptions or expectations made by the aid workers and the wider outside agencies? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, but the, you know, and this question would be a hard one, I think, to ask. I think it was more... It was harder than I was expecting it was going to be to ask people um, because it was becoming increasingly a sore subject, this idea of, of what the future is. Um, and it, it's it appeared that when I asked some people, it was the first time that they were kind of really thinking about it or spelling it out um, out loud. Um, and I think that the knee-jerk reaction a lot of people would have to, you know, what does the future look like? Um was oh we don't have a future it's it's already you know it's passed us by um and we have to kind of start from scratch now or 
you know, I've given up, but, you know, for my kids, um, you know, that their future is still intact because it's far enough away that I hope that, um, you know, they have a future and I can live vicariously through, through them. Um, but I think when people spent a little bit more time kind of thinking about concretely um, what the future looked like, I mean, it was either kind of, you know, obviously I would like to return to Syria. That is, that is the, um, the, the dream that kind of sits on top of all the other dreams, it's untouchable. Um, but then at the same time, people would talk about other temporalities and other ways of being in displacement um, that I kind of situate within the timeline of kind of near futures or alternative presence. Um, so, you know, people wouldn't be speaking um, explicitly about the future to me, but they would be saying things like, oh, well, you know, I have my... Um, my family lives in, in, in another city in Jordan, and um, I would just like to kind of move there and, and be around them, be around family and feel like I'm normal um, and, and maybe be able to work and feel, you know, I'd still be displaced. I'd still be a refugee, but I'm, um, you know, I'm doing something with my life. I'm living comfortably in, in another city, even though it's not in Syria. And then when we can return, we return. Um, but in the meantime, you know, it'd be nice to not live in Azraq, um, waiting in this way. Um, or people would describe, you know, uh, I, I really wish that I could just go back to Syria and, um, not go back home because I, it's not, it's not possible at the moment. It's too dangerous, but, but just live anywhere else in Syria where I could be safe. Um, uh, as a, basically as an internally displaced person. Um, and so there were a lot of these, uh, what I think at first appeared to be contradictory timelines um, where it didn't, I didn't at first understand how they fit with this idea of, of the kind of final return with the capital R to Syria. Um, and then I started realizing that these are just alternative ways of, of, of being in displacement. These are kind of for the meantime um, and often, you know, people speaking out loud about them was a way of coping with their present. They were coping mechanisms. Um, but they were, there were ways that um, allowed me to see that people were still thinking for themselves. They were still kind of projecting visions of a better life for themselves um, into various futures, depending on kind of w- what their situation was at the present in, in Azraq, what stresses they were experiencing. Um, and this was really important because um, as I mentioned, you know, Jordan doesn't want displaced people, especially Syrians, to be um, settling in Jordan. They don't want people to end up staying for generations like like we saw with the, the Palestinian population in Jordan. Um, and so the NGOs have to kind of work through that um, mentality and um, socialize people to only kind of think about returning to Syria and nothing else, not not settling in Azraq, not settling in, in Jordan, just thinking about returning to Syria. And in the meantime, you're just, you know, in your caravan uh, waiting, I guess, is, is the idea. Um, and so the fact that, that people could still talk to me about um, other kind of imaginings for other ways their life could be at the moment, to me, was really, really significant. And it, and it you know, it, it showed that people had hope in a very kind of hopeless um, situation. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I end the book talking about that because um, I, I really wanted to comp- uh, to complicate this idea um, that refugees only ever 
you know, dream about the return to their country. Um, and that's all they spend their time thinking about. Um, and that's what they're waiting for. Um, and I hope that by kind of talking about the other ways that people um, narrate their lives in, in the near futures and the futures um, uh, contributes to kind of a more complex image of, of that. I completely understand why you chose to end the book with that, right? It really does kind of leave this um, in some ways ambivalent, right? Complicated picture that I think is so important to the overall message that you're sharing with us. Um, and as it is the last part of the book, right, we have sort of come to the end of you telling us about it, which has been very interesting and insightful and leaves me only with my final question. Um, this book is done. It is available for people to read. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like our audience to be aware of? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on um, an article at the moment that um, delves more deeply into um, the idea of resilience. I've kind of kept myself from using that word uh, throughout the interview, um, and I try not to use it in the book too much because I think it's a it's an overly used and overly critiqued term. So I'm, I'm working on an article right now um, using kind of some of my observations from the same fieldwork uh, to understand what is this relationship between resilience and um, resistance um, and what are some kind of productive ways that we can um, position this term, especially within anthropology, instead of just uh, critiquing it or, or using it and taking it for granted. Um, and beyond that, you know, at the moment, I, I have quite uh, a, a blank slate ahead of me for what my next you know, big uh, research is. But um, I do hope that uh, I, I continue to be connected with um, my interlocutors and, and Azraq and, and continue asking these questions around uh, time and displacement. Um, but we'll just have to see kind of what direction it ends up going in. Well, that sounds very exciting. Um, and of course, while we are seeing what happens and perhaps reading the forthcoming uh, article at some point, uh, the book can be read. And again, it's titled Time and Power in Azraq Refugee Camp, a 9 to 5 Emergency, published by the American University of Cairo Press. Melissa, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun.